welcome to Future Focused, Sophisticated Estate Planning with Wigan and Dana, the show where CPAs, insurance professionals, investment brokers, trust companies, CFPs, and more can firm up on their understanding of estate planning strategies so they can better guide their clients to make wise decisions with their legacy. Future Focus is hosted by Aaron Nichols and Michael Clear, partners of the Private Client Services Department at Wigan and Dana. Subscribe to Future Focused Sophisticated Estate Planning on your favorite podcast platform and share episodes with your clients. And now, here are your hosts, Aaron and Michael. So welcome to Future Focused. I'm your host, Michael Clear, and joined today with my co-host, Aaron Nichols. Good to have you back, Aaron. Excited to be back. Great. So today we thought we'd talk about a topic that we've been seeing in the news for a while now, and that's conservatorships. What's the most recent one, Aaron? Yeah. So I was just reading headlines about Jay Leno's petition for a conservatorship over his wife. A few people in my orbit have gotten curious about the role of a conservator, why you would need to petition for one. And I think that's likely because in popular culture, people's most recent big reference to a conservatorship is the Britney Spears matter. And without getting in the weeds, it was just sort of nationally seen as potentially something negative and certainly unwanted by the conserved person. So we thought it would be helpful to sort of discuss the role of a conservator and what forms it can take. Yeah, and I think right off the bat, we say conservator or conservator. In some places, it may actually be called a guardian or a guardian of an adult. So the terms sometimes can be mixed, especially across jurisdictional lines. But today we'll call it a conservator. And so, Aaron, what is a conservatorship? A conservatorship is something that is created by a court. So in Connecticut, it's the probate court. And it is created to oversee a conserved person's personal and or financial affairs. We have two different categories. We have involuntary and voluntary conservatorships. And we have conservatorships of the person and conservatorships of the estate. Those are kind of the two continuums that we often operate on. So if, if we look at what is a conservatorship of the person versus a conservatorship of the estate? Yeah. So I think that that was a great way to frame it. A conservatorship of someone's person can be thought of like a guardianship over someone who is an adult. So just like in the situation of a minor having either a legal or natural guardian, a conservator of an adult's person is the individual with legal authority over that person's well-being. That can lead to decisions relating to where they live, who they live with. All of those are kind of conservator of the person type decision making. Absolutely. Yeah. And most often conservatorship of a person is needed in connection with medical decisions. So, for example, in a conservatorship where the adult has diminished capacity, potentially because they're neurodivergent and everyone realizes that this person may not have the 
analytical ability to be able to decide what medical decisions are right for him or her. So having a conservatorship of a person puts that decision-making in someone else's hands. So to sort of put that into context, in the healthcare realm, we do talk with our clients about appointing a decision-maker for healthcare decisions when they're unable to do so. But the vast majority of the time, we're talking about a healthcare representative, agent, surrogate, it's called different things in different jurisdictions, but that role typically arises under an advanced medical directive or a healthcare power of attorney. And in that context, the person whom you're prospectively appointing to have decision-making authority only will have that authority if you are physically incapable of communicating with a physician on someone's behalf. So if the person simply has some diminished capacity, it could be for mental health reasons, it could be perhaps a diagnosis of being on the autism spectrum, something that affects a person's ability to make a fully informed decision. That is where the role of a conservatorship of a person comes in and where we see it most frequently. Okay. The second type of a conservatorship then is what we refer to as the conservatorship of the estate. So the conservator who is not on the personal side, but on the financial side of the conserved persons. Right. And again, we have sort of a corollary in our typical estate planning conversations because we'll be talking to clients about powers of attorney, documents that all of our base estate planning clients are signing, appointing someone as an agent to make financial decisions on that person's behalf. In the context of a conservatorship, the powers can be broader. So for example, in the headline about Jay Leno's wife, the details in the petition reveal that the goal of the conservatorship is simply to give Jay the power to create a revocable living trust for his wife, who's suffering from dementia. And the goal of that revocable living trust is asset management really beyond the scope of the power of attorney contemplating what might happen if Jay predeceases his wife. Now, why does he need the conservatorship? Well, under California law, presumably, he doesn't have the authority to create a trust on someone else's behalf. And in fact, in Connecticut, where Michael and I both practice, our power of attorney statute would only enable the agent under that document to create a trust on someone else's behalf if that power of attorney explicitly says so and the principal has initialed that. You call it a hot power because it takes some affirmative action to give another person that power. So seeking a conservatorship can broaden the authority that someone else might have under a power of attorney It can also be protective in nature. So not referenced in the Jay Leno case, but something commonly that we can see in the context of generally a voluntary conservatorship is protecting the conserved person from 
wrongdoers. So again, dealing with someone who has diminished capacity of some sort, maybe not the decision-making skills necessary, could be susceptible to, for example, a financial scam or predatory lending and get themselves into financial situations where they're taken advantage of. So having a conservator of that person's estate appointed renders the conserved person enabled to enter into these contracts. So if someone tries to take advantage of them, it's legally void. So it's a good understanding of the two types of conservatorships of the person and of the estate. Let's hit on the voluntary versus involuntary side of it. Let's go with involuntary first. We don't have to get into the details of like the requirements, like the doctor's requirements that maybe need, but kind of when does someone seek an involuntary conservatorship of another person? Yeah, so involuntary would generally come in two forms. One, clearly the person that may or may not be conserved is objecting to this proposed conservatorship. They are not an active participant in agreeing that this would be in their best interest. The other circumstance that you would see involuntary is simply when the person who may or may not be conserved doesn't have the capability of participating. That's a good chance in the Jay Leno case because the petition reveals that his wife has pretty advanced dementia at this juncture and doesn't really have the faculty to participate in hearings regarding a potential conservatorship. So in that instance, the court won't look to the person who's the subject of the hearing, but instead professionals likely around or the testimony of others in the situation. So specific to Connecticut, an involuntary conservatorship requires the court to make a determination of mental incompetency. So there's a different bar to obtaining an involuntary conservatorship for good reason, but the standard is clearly going to be different for an involuntary conservatorship than it is for a voluntary conservatorship, because in the case of the latter, Um, The court is just going to assess the testimony of the person to be conserved and whomever brought the petition. And if the judge is satisfied that everyone is comfortable with the proposal and the parameters of the conservatorship, then that's all that's needed. We see the voluntary come up in a couple of ways. Sometimes it's a prospective action taken from an individual that somebody else thinks should be conserved. So if Aaron thought I should be conserved and I didn't want to be conserved, I may actually go to court and have somebody else appointed as a voluntary conservator. Another is we've had situations where the person simply knew that they needed help, but also wanted court supervision over that help, Mm -hmm. right? And the court system in a voluntary, at least in Connecticut, provides oversight of that person's actions. So the person knew, this was a number of years ago, but they knew that they had capacity at the point when they sought it, but they wanted help and they knew they were going to need help. So they sought the voluntary so that there would be court oversight. So it's another mechanism there, at least in Connecticut, in a voluntary conservatorship, the conservator has duties to report back 
on the financial side of conservation of the person's estate to report back on a regular basis over what's going on. So there's a piece there that provides that supervision, which I think is also can be important in a lot of these types of situations. That's a very good point. And it certainly brings up another important element to this is that I would assume in all jurisdictions, but certainly is the case in Connecticut, the ongoing oversight really requires annual reporting to the court. So in the case of a conservatorship of an estate, that is going to be a financial report, sort of a modified fiduciary accounting of what's been done with the conserved person's assets. And then with a conservatorship of a person, a little bit less formal, but you're still giving a report on the conserved person's well-being. So the court does have an opportunity on an annual basis to review the conservatorship. And looking back at the involuntary one, there's kind of two levels, at least in Connecticut. One is the court determines the person is not able to care for him or herself or not able to make financial decisions. But then two is the court can only restrict the person in the least restrictive way. So the court may say, and there's maybe examples there can help, but if somebody doesn't want to be conserved, but the court ultimately determines that they should be, the next step in those discussions is, well, what's least restrictive? Sometimes people still want a say in the financial management. If it's of the estate, what gets paid for, what they can contract, can they not contract anything? If you have an involuntary conservatorship, so one, the court's going to find out where they sit on their ability to manage, but two, they have to find that least restrictive means. So they may actually still get a bank account that they have control over, or there may be certain parameters around decision-making that is permitted by the court. That's another great point. Yeah, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. And in fact, the court's determination of the least restrictive means is a great underscore, especially because conservatorships really have gotten a bad rap nationally for the headlines that people have seen over the years. So in Connecticut, we have that standard, but I do think it's pretty universal. And I do think in Connecticut with conservatorships, we see them proactively, sometimes when families know they need it or individuals know they need it. And then sometimes you see them in feuds and fights where the person may not think they need to be conserved or family members disagree over who should be serving as the conservatorship or what sort of decisions should be happening there. Where does the conserved person live? How much care does the conserved person have? Should someone be paid for helping? All of those decision-making are unfortunate opportunities for fighting, not necessarily litigation, right, but fighting. And that fighting happens here in Connecticut in the probate court where all of that decision-making occurs. Right, which is probably a good tie-in to the estate planning that we do because in connection with the interplay of the documents that we discussed early on, like the Advanced Medical Directive and Power of Attorney, those documents can inform or help inform a court what the conserved person would want in such a circumstance. So, for example, in the Advanced Medical Directives that Michael and I both use for our clients, there's a specific contemplation of 
the need for a conservatorship. And in such a circumstance, who does the client want the court to appoint as conservator of the person? That same system doesn't necessarily exist within a power of attorney, but having executed a power of attorney in favor of another individual can be compelling evidence that that is the person with whom you entrust with your financial affairs. Yeah, Aaron, that's a fair point. So, I mean, we've talked about conservatorships and when we use them, we hit a little about planning around them. I guess we kind of missed the, I guess, back to least restrictive. If a client has a power of attorney or the client has a power of attorney and a funded living trust or revocable trust, and that document is sufficient to manage the person's financial affairs, it may be unnecessary to have a conservator, even though the person lacks capacity, it may be unnecessary to have a conservatorship of the estate. Or in that situation, the conservatorship of the estate maybe only deals with retirement benefits mm. that we cannot put into a revocable trust by itself. So we start to see those interplays between the planning documents that we have, the power of attorney on the financial side and the living trust slash revocable trust and the conservatorship. And then on the healthcare decision side with the living will and the appointment of the healthcare representative. So sometimes we say it's possible to plan around a conservatorship, but ultimately there are situations where even the best planning can lead to needing to put a conservatorship in place. That's right. But hopefully the information in this episode is good impetus for those out there who haven't yet executed those base estate planning documents to go ahead and do it because it really can help protect you in such a circumstance if you get there later in life. Absolutely. It was a great conversation about conservatorships in general, a comparison between conservatorships of the person and of the estate. So healthcare decisions versus financial decisions and then voluntary versus involuntary. So hope that gave everyone a little bit of insight and we look forward to our next discussion with everybody. Thanks so much. We'll see you guys soon. Thank you for listening to Future Focused, Sophisticated Estate Planning, hosted by Aaron Nichols and Michael Clear, partners of the Private Client Services Department at Wigan and Dana. At Wigan and Dana, our aim is preserving the wealth that a family has worked so hard to create and pride ourselves in offering value-driven solutions and results. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, share episodes with your clients, and follow our highly talented, creative, and experienced lawyers on LinkedIn for even more great insight. We'll see you next time on Future Focused, Sophisticated Estate Planning.